Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey, Jake, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you, Randy? I am doing fabulous. And you know what? I want to give a couple more shout outs to the Tiny Room Challenge 3 that was just completed. Big kudos to Daniel O'Neill and James Wiseman. I think they have great chemistry together and they do a really great job of just kind of keeping it moving and the enthusiasm. I also think that Freddie Finner has been great as the head judge and kind of tying it together when the point has been finalized. So I just want to give them a shout out. And uh, I also had a couple other observations while um, watching it. And this one is the man of no words. And what I mean by that is that Daniel O'Neill was super excited about introducing this one judge that was going to be joining for Tiny Room Challenge 3. And uh, he was kind of rattling it off like, this guy is a multiple world champion just inducted into the Hall of Fame. Daniel O'Neill is super excited about announcing who this guest judge is going to be. And he goes, and I'd like to introduce Deaton Mitchell. Deaton, how are you doing? And Deaton just has a one word response. Great. (laughs) And I can see Daniel is like kind of hoping that there would be more and he's waiting for more interaction. And you can see that Deaton's not going to give him any more than that. So it's just kind of this funny moment. And then uh, Daniel grabs the ball again and says, okay, well, great to have you here. So, you know, you have won many world titles and, you know, you have won four open pairs titles in a row. I don't think that has ever happened. And he asked Deaton, so Deaton, what advice would you give to an up-and-coming player? And Deaton has a one-word response, practice. (laughs) Deaton's so funny. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I know. It's funny because Daniel, again, was there waiting for more, and and Deaton wasn't going to give him any more of that. He was there to judge. He wasn't there to be interviewed. That's hilarious. (laughs) Yeah, it was good. So how you doing? Great. How do you get better? Practice. (laughs) And that was it. So I just thought that was, yeah, I just thought that was kind of a, a cool moment. And there was the other moment that really hit me. And this was a moment where it totally took me by surprise. I mean, I, I think I might have even said like, holy shit, didn't expect this player to do what they did. And it was Katie Gitma from Medellin. And I don't really remember her when I was there visiting uh, last year, but she's new on the scene and she just totally surprised me about where she is in her game. She can't have been playing for more than a year, but she did this one move that I just kind of made me leap out of my seat. So she did an overhand wrist flip with her right hand on angle and got it stuck on her left hand, kind of in a claw at an angle. And then she took her right hand and tilted it so it was upside down clock. And then she does a behind the leg heel tip upside down. It comes right back up. And then she tilts it angle and does a turbo back roll up out of the screen. It looks like it comes off the ceiling and then she catches it. So I was just like, wow, I didn't expect to see such a green player going for some very advanced skills. But I love that she was attacking the game with uh, a fierceness and not kind of just trying to work for a delay under the leg and, you know, just tentatively going after stuff. So I think she's one to really keep an eye on in the future. She just really took me by surprise for sure. Yeah. I remember that moment. It was a, 
I think the disc might have bounced off the wall or something. It was just totally unexpected. And then, boom, she caught it after that back roll. It was pretty amazing. Um, so with that, let's get to the episode for today. So we will be continuing our conversation with Crazy John, and we'll find out whether the hotel ledge walking was myth or fact. Enjoy. So we've heard some rumors that you used to walk out onto hotel ledges. I'm not sure if there's any truth to that, but if there is, can you tell us a a story about that? Is there something interesting that happened? Just boredom. Uh, A few times, I think it was just curiosity, just uh, crazy curiosity. uh, And yeah, some boredom. But uh, the major one was in in China. That was, uh, was in Guangzhou, Canton, Guangzhou, China. We were at the Baiyun Hotel. I love that. I remember that name because that was also the name of the beer you bought there because they make the beer in the basement. Bayoun Hotel makes Bayoun beer. Um, And uh, we were hanging out with the camera guys. Um, Another small story is that uh, there's a couple guys on the crew, the film crew. They're also experienced with uh, Vietnam, their filmography. And uh, I remember on the airport, just going over to Tokyo uh, soul, I forget where we went first, but uh, these guys would have this Mickey Mouse doll with them everywhere and they stuck on the camera. And then, you know, we go through these checkpoints and stuff, and everybody loved Mickey. So it's kind of a signature, you know, because everybody loves Mickey Mouse. And then we get through, I remember the Beijing, the big military super checkpoint. And then we get uh, Hotel Beijing, finally doing a little camera work there. We see him there, Mickey Mouse, Shanghai, there's Mickey Mouse. And then finally, the guy said, hey, we're going to have a beer across the hall. You guys come by. Frisbee team, you want to come by? So we did. We went over, had a beer and stuff. And then and the one guy went over, locks the door. And he comes back, sits down, pulls out the Mickey Mouse doll, yanks off his arm, and pulls out a sack of doja. I just couldn't even believe it. I go, oh, my God, we're all going to jail right now. So a sack of doja? What's that? Uh, it's just some goop he brought. It was stuffed into the arm of Mickey Mouse that he'd been putting on <laughs> soldiers and everything wow. for thousands of <laughs> okay. miles. All right, just haven't heard that term before, so good to clarify. Uh, you so are going to jail. Oh my god! So I'm just shitting, and I was freaking out. And uh, you, I thought that was bad. But after I, I did partake a little bit, and I just became so paranoid. I just wondered if that, you know, because because this balcony thing happened right after that. But I just started bugging. Uh, it was all in good fun. So there's one guy, cool guy, kind of red hair. I remember this particular night, he had a pair of men's underwear on his head. I know that that, I don't know if that was something with him and his other camera guys, but I remember seeing a grown man with a pair of underwear on his head. You know, I, I guess as things go with crazy, I mean, when you run out of time, you create, create more time. So I just kind of slithered out the window without anybody really noticing. Um, it was one of those, it was probably almost two feet deep, you know, wide, whatever. And uh big old sliding glass window. And I just kind of, and then uh, the first thing I did was I crouched down under the window. And then until I heard somebody say, where's crazy, did I slowly pop my head up? And they're like, what the fuck? No way. Crazy would get, dude, stop. And that was just, and it was on, dude. Because first of all, oh we knew God. we were on the 30th floor. 30th? 30. So, is that what am I doing? I was like, yeah, check this out. So I scooch, you know, and then I turn around and I all the way down to the end of the corner and last of the hotel, bro. I remember uh, every once in a while, I was a cable, kind of a 
support cable that would come down to these bolts on the thing. You know, I memorized this on my way out. And, uh, you know, I'm crouching over. Kind of scary, but it's entertaining to me. And what I didn't realize is that when I got to the end, you know, there was a window, the last window of all these rooms. And then there was some concrete. So I used the window ledge to reach up, turn around, you know. But what I didn't realize is that it was a window. And when I popped my head up, there was some housekeeping staff at a table about eight feet away from my face. And they looked directly at me after I appeared. And they I won't ever forget the look. And they were absolutely dumbfounded no con just absolutely just <laughs> mouth open I sure. hand and absolutely and i just you know first of all i came up i looked at them i'm like smile and i'm like down and then i start working my way back um the key was on my way back where there was not a cable in this case there was a lag bolt the lag eye bolt that i tripped on i fell to my knees so that was that by then everybody i remember Chip Joe, a couple of other guys, they were lined up like Manny, Moe, Jack, Larry, Curly, looking out the window. And I'm making my way back now. And I, uh, they saw me fall. It was rad. Wow. But, you know, then I made it the last 20, 30 feet or something. That was pretty cool, man. Wow. Okay. Wow. So so you, you obviously, you did it again. I know you did it in Seattle. So were those the only two times you ever did that kind of thing? Or uh, wow. dangled in Kansas City, and I did another dangle in uh, St. Louis at the Clarion. I remember I did a, a 19 in China. What's a 19? Uh, this is a 19th floor. Oh, okay. I mean, none of that compares to... Now, Chip, Chip and Joe both will remember this. This was, I thought, it was scarier than that. Um, Cape Cod, uh, we would do, yeah, it was, the three, was it the two of us? I can't remember if I had Joey on this one or not. I know that Chip and I, I have to think back. It might have been just Chip and I, but uh, we'd been to Cape Cod a couple of years on these back-to-school tours out on the, do the, do all the the main the, the main stays uh Hyannis Port, uh P Town, um Yarmouth, you know, anything with a good solid neighborhood. They had college kids, so and a lot of cool bars out there on the Cape back then. These were uh and of course Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard, those were big markets for us with the Anheuser Busch. I mean they they basically ruled those islands. They had the number one market share back then. You got to understand it was a money factory, uh, you know, in St. Louis. That was just some of the extraordinary years for the company. So that's a lot of how the Frisbee team was able to be you know, created. It's just out of abundance and curiosity and good sales work, I think. So here's one of these case, classic case for the Bud Light team is, you know, you're working at night. You're in a bar. You don't drink and play. I mean, you, you don't drink before you do our routine. That was wasn't ever even a consideration. But occasionally you could have a pop or two after work, we say it. Which and as Bush started making a regular process, I don't know. So that would be like the meet and greet, they call it. So hey, wanna meet the guys? Stick around, we'll buy you a beer. Talk to the Bud Light Frisbee team. This was Martha's Vineyard. Uh, we're closing out the club. We did the show earlier that night. Everything's fine. This was Chip and I and we had gotten there, and as Bush has a plane that they used to shuttle, you know, from uh, Hyannis or Yarmouth, any of those airports in Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, the same. So that was our vehicle for that for these tours. Other than the famous Bush van, put some miles on that thing. 
but it's just a little uh, 16-seater of uh, the Anheuser-Busch plane. So uh, that's how we get home. So we did the gig. And now it's like 2 in the morning. The club owner just loves us and his wife. They're crazy about us. Awesome. Thank you. You're so good. with You know, I realize we got no beer at the room when we go back. We got nothing. You know, these guys are going, oh, we got nothing. So we're, the night has just begun for us. And uh, so I asked him about if we could bring some beer. And the owner just says, yeah, go on in there and grab you a pallet of Budweiser, whatever you want, Bud, Bud, Bud Light, you know, whatever. And uh, so I did. I came back. And it was hot. Got on the plane. We take off. You know, you take off, and then you kind of circle around before you head toward your final direction. And uh, I have my knee brace on. I'm in the very back seat, and I can't wait to get this tight, sweaty thing off. So I just put my, you know, my foot up on the wall and then <clears throat> take my knee brace off. And what I didn't realize is I had put my foot on the arm of the door, and I blew the door open to the plane. The big arm, when I pulled my brace, it just, and the door out and up. So if you've ever, have you ever seen papers like in cartoons like uh, something's like this the papers are all going everywhere and then you say you close the windy door and the papers kind of feather down to the ground mm -hmm. that's exactly what it looks like and so meanwhile i guess my whole anheuser bush staff here is like eight of those people two fribsy guys the pilot his co-pilot and what we had come to know as a very bad thing was that his pilot was the club owner and his wife sitting two up two up bro so, God. you know, strapped in, totally illegal. Anyway, uh, I so like I say, it's super loud. I re, I uh, just immediately react. You know, in the very back seat is a single seat. Chip's right in front of me on the right. And uh, so I reach over to the door. I'm going to grab, I'm almost there, but uh, my seatbelt. So I got to undo my seatbelt now. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, so I get up out of my seat. And I'm reaching over here. I, I remember I had my glasses on. Big old glasses and that ugly strap, croaky they call them. And uh, I lean out just a little bit. And now, oh, Chip is so kind. He grabbed my leg. What a big help. He grabbed my foot, actually. And uh, I, I could only get out just a little bit. And then the wind, I didn't realize it, but it started pulling my glasses off. That would end the whole tour. And I would pull back in, whoosh, take the glasses off. And then uh, Chip grabs my foot. And I, I got up out of that plane, dude, and reached up and turned around and grabbed that thing and shut the door. I nailed it. Boom. And then that's when the papers fell. And then not even a minute went by to where the club owner up in the pilot seat with his wife in the same seatbelt says, hey, uh, you pass one of them Budweiser's up here, please. And uh, yeah, I just do the Southern <laughs> accent. But oh my God, that's crazy. Well, as we said earlier, you you had the best saves in the game, man. So <laughs> right there. Looking yeah. down with lights on the island was pretty thrilling, though. <laughs> All the door seat, not the window seat. I can see how that's more scary than the the ledge, because you weren't ready for that to happen. <laughs> yeah, finally, something wasn't ready for. <laughs> so crazy. I understand that at some point you moved to Japan. Can you talk a little bit about what facilitated the move and and what was it like to be there? Yeah. Um, gosh, I love Japan. Um, Big Frisbee country, you know, a lot of history there. Super rich. <clears throat> Excuse me. The first time in Tokyo was the Narita Airport. It was when we were on our way to 
Beijing. So that was at 86. 87, uh, the JPDGA and Altria de Hirokobo produced the first LARC Japan Cup disc golf tournament, and they publicized the first prize was a million yen. So I just was locked onto that million thing. So I had not really changed over to disc golf at that point. I was still just digging on the overall and, and uh, was still ha- you know, was having some luck in, at, at both avenues in the 80s. But uh, this was 87, yeah. So I saw the flyer. said, first place, 1 million yen. That was in Santa Barbara. Okay, so this is pre-internet. So I get this in the mail on a PDGA mailing. I took the flyer with me, and uh, I actually went ahead and called up, and I found out who flew to Japan, Northwest Airlines. Okay. Found out exactly. I saw there's a round-trip ticket on these correct dates. I just want to get an idea. So that would go, this okay, right? On that day, okay, right? Okay, $692. So they get on my bike, and I ride down to Uptime. Uh, Michael Sigliano and his wife, Vivian, their company, Uptime Nutritional Supplement. I'm sure you're hip to that. It's, it's been a staple of mine since 1985, every day. But uh, their offices were right across the uh, Korea from Palm Park. They were kind of on our map. I went to work for them later, but I uh, picked them up as a sponsor for the Bud Light team. In 85, I walked in. I said, Michael, you won't even believe it. And he's like, yeah, crazy John. What is it this time? And I was like, check this out. You know, how about that? Japan, you were just talking about. You want to get into other countries. He's like, holy shit, look at that. A million. That's got to be a lot. How much is that? I was like, I don't know. But we talked about it. He's going, he looks in a couple of books and stuff. And he's going, hmm, hey, Vivi, what do you know about Japan? Not much, Michael. Well, I don't know. I don't know. What's, the, what's this here? I goes, well, that's that's about what a plane ticket would cost. I was just wondering, what do you think about, uh, I think I could ask you to help me out, get over there. Um, you know, we could sample it. Uh, you know, he's like, all right, let's do it. And then he just hollers out to his, uh, I forget the guy's name, but had a check for $692 made out. I rode back home with that check, dude, in my pocket. I'm freaking out. So I'm going to Japan. I'm going to get me a million. Uh, and of course, this was months ahead of time. So, be it as it may, finally comes around to November, which the tournament was in uh, around my birthday weekend, actually. And I went over there. I just was looking at some pictures this morning on the Facebook of that original group that went over Scott Zimmerman, Amy Schiller, Kathy Nelson, Tammy Pelican, Stork, Riley Mandershot, A. Hart, Ferenc, Rosnowski. Yes, great, great group went over that first time. And, um, yeah, I was in uh, tennis shoes. These guys were real golfers. They had the cleats. I remember Zimmerman was in Nike Shark high tops, you know, which is kind of, I think, what they used to drill tunnels with also. This golf tournament had just come from, I remember we had a good year at Santa Cruz that year. I was golfing more. I was playing at City College in Santa Barbara on Saturdays with Calvin Adair and uh, Dave Tutt and a couple other friends. So I was in practice. But this particular tournament, I remember I played with three AVRs. A lot of people thought that was kind of stupid. So we, uh, you know, we had it out. It's like a big four-day tournament, man. And uh, somehow I came out on top. Um, that finals was uh, Zimmerman, Scott Zimmerman, Dave Greenwell, John A. Hart, Sam Ferens. That's a Hall of Fame poster right there. Yeah, Holy world man, champ, Nolan. U.S. Open champ. Yeah, another world. Yeah, I was, I was tickled. Yeah, I don't. I just for our, our listeners out there who you know most of them are freestylers. I, I just want to say that 
craze, you're not just a freestyler is what I'm trying to get at. You are a multi-talented Frisbee player on all the disciplines. You know, I'd like to think that you have to, uh, as far as these two disciplines go, which I think are the most difficult in the sport uh, and, and on opposite ends of the spectrum, you, you might admit some of you, but I would like to, uh, I remind myself, I used to say it something like this where you've got, and you know the nuance in disc golf there's a lot of manipulation and stuff short amount of space i need the disc to do not just one thing but about three or four things and i know i'm going to manipulate grip release angles anything conventionals out the door it's what gets it what you know gets you that low score so um you, you know some of the small nuance like if you watch joey and chip they do a lot of hard starts with zero spin or just with a opposite hand flick just to some, just to get it airborne and then the second and third levels of manip- manipulation occur so which is you know way above my head but that's another part of the game that I that I grew so close to watching those guys and working with those guys but I used to consider this as like uh, I would say you got to freestyle a long time to learn how to golf like this and in some respects it could work in the other way where um, you know, you got to play quite a bit of golf to learn how to do this particular thing in freestyle, like a Mac line or something like that. And um, that's, that's kind of a golf shot. Yeah. I, I, for me, they just played into each other's, uh, skill sets. Yeah. We're actually seeing that right now with Juliana Corver, who's now moved really heavily into freestyle right now. And she's bringing all that golf skill set and knowledge and understanding of the disc into freestyle right now. And you just watching her blossom. It's crazy. Yeah. Her, her focus, um, exceptional focus and you know that's that determination of a world champ uh you know juliana comes off as a world champion person um she does a lot outside of that room you know we may know what goes on inside but uh you know i think since she entered the sport she's done nothing but uh she doesn't do a lot of pulling in if you know what i mean she uses her her uh, her gifts and her access to the sport and its uh, and its intricacies to to push out to gather energy and, uh, you know, spread it. She's good for business. Kind of like the V-Bros, you know, that world-class sort of gold standard. She's right there with that, you know, sort of the whole package. I wonder if she has some spiritual motivation, too. I know that on the golf, you know, golf end, it's it's discipline, certainly. But there's a lot of repetition in golf, but there's not in freestyle. Uh, freestyle, you want to have as much variety as possible, where in golf, you want consistency, um, the body might be sending the disc different distances, but it is still doing the exact and repetitious physical movements. So um, it's anything but boring. You know, freestylers used to say, yeah, golf, yeah, boring. But, um, you know, at, at for instance, at Juliana's level, if you want to do that many different things with a the disc, then it's, uh, you know, anything but but that. But we need Juliana and her story to continue. We need it to do good. We need it to speak loudly. And uh, this is one of the shareable parts of the sport that people that haven't taken it on yet could, could benefit from getting hold of. Yes, I do agree that we are very lucky to have Juliana Corver in this sport of freestyle frisbee. You know, it's interesting to, that John talks about the overlap of practice and 
freestyle and disc golf. And I can really see that in Juliana's game, you know, with that repetition practice. She she practices like that. She even releases videos of herself practicing like that, just mastering moves. And then when you watch her play, like we saw at Tiny Room Challenge, she sets a move up and she can do it almost every time. She's very solid, very controlled. And, you know, Part of what inspires me, because I don't practice that way and get to see somebody who practices that way and succeeds that way, it's sort of inspirational to me to think, oh, I should really focus my practice a little bit more. But uh, so, yeah, so I want to just say congratulations to Juliana for her win at Tiny Room, third one in a row, and um, she definitely deserved it. I also want to say shout out to Tommy Leitner for his win. I mean, that guy, he's been playing for so long. He has so many titles, and then he steps into his first tiny room and just crushes everybody. I mean, what an inspiration he is, too. He's done so much for our sport. Uh, I just want to say congratulations to you, Tommy. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Tommy kind of schooled the youngins there, right? It was kind of cool to watch Tommy's, you know, breadth and depth of his game being able to just handle that that format so well. It just sort of reminded me of the old time watch commercials where they would put these watches under these stress tests and they would say timex takes a licking and keeps on ticking and kind of reminds me of tommy tommy's been playing for so long at such a high level it's like tommy takes a licking and keeps on ticking and he showed it with that victory in tiny room for sure before Tommy won, I was talking to Lori about how all of the really successful players in Tiny Room are all these new players. It's like the style of freestyle has kind of changed because of Tiny Room format, and all these new players are stepping up into that format, whereas the older players, you know, were used to being outside, having the wind, having space, having choreography, and it was really neat to see Tommy make that transition and be able to succeed in a totally different format. For sure. That was really cool. And, and again, big shout out to James and Daniel for their their presence and their chemistry together. And I'm looking forward to Tiny Room Challenge 4, which sounds like it's going to come up in the not too distant future. And also shout out to Ryan. I know he works his butt off on the back end. He's not out there in front where everybody can see him. But the reason that it works so well is because he's back there pulling all the wires, pushing all the buttons and making it happen. So Ryan deserves a lot of kudos too. Indeed. And on that note, Jake, I will talk to you next time. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. To contact us or for more info, check us out at frisbeeguru.com. Home to Haynesville, Shooting the Frisbees, and live stream.